The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body supplying the much-needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. If you don't mind, I'd like to start in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm but a vessel. I'm here for your use. I'm here because I know that you have a word for all of us. And I want to get out of the way in every way possible so that your word can go out clearly and be received without me getting in the way. I pray also for everybody that's listening, whether they're in person or whether they're by Zoom, that you would prepare their heart to receive this word. I wanted to bring forth the fruit that you had desired in your mind and in your heart. And I'm asking you, Lord, to do a mighty deed today. I'm asking you, Lord, to increase the expectation in every person's heart here today. I don't want this to just be another day, another Sunday. So I'm asking you to move. I'm asking you to stir up the hearts of your people. I'm asking you to anoint your word and everyone that is here listening, Father. I'm asking, Father, that they would be able to hear and see and understand the importance of this word here today. My God, it's always important. I know that. It's always important. But in the midst of uh, the generation that we're living in, Father, we need a word from you. There's enough voices out there, Lord, on the radio, on the TV, on the internet. And all the words that we're hearing are falling flat. They're not coming to pass. Judge something if it be of God by the fruit, right, Lord? You judge the word of the prophet if it come to pass, right, Lord? Tired. hearing so many words. And then not much come to pass. The way that it was spoken. <laughs> the way that it was applied. I want us to all hear the word from heaven, Lord. So for your name's sake, I'm asking you, Father, 
the sake of the people that you love. Please do a work right now. In Jesus' name. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I'd like you to give me some latitude and because I don't want to go through three chapters of 1 Kings. I'm going to try to summarize 1 Kings 16 through 18, just to give you an idea, to give you a picture of the times, of the atmosphere, of the climate in the nation. I go back to my notes that I've taken long ago in the Bible. This was the time that Israel was a divided kingdom. Solomon and his son were the last to reign in a united kingdom. But because of the sins of Solomon, he paid a penalty. Actually, the Lord said, I'm going to stay the penalty from you, but it's going to happen upon your son. And Rehoboam was his son. And when Rehoboam reigned, the kingdom became divided. There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom. Ten tribes were with the north, two tribes were with the south. And I'm going to talk to you about a little bit about the north right now. Jeroboam was the first king. He reigned 22 years. He died. He caused all the people to sin. And his son Nadab continued the same and did worse than his father. And the Lord fed up with his line, cut them off. Jeroboam's line was absolutely cut off with Nadab. A new king came. His name was Basha. And he reigned for a good amount of years. But like his predecessor, his line was cut off as well because he did things that would not please the Lord. The dogs ate of Basha and his descendants in the cities and the fowls ate of his descendants in the fields. When Basha died, his son Elah Elah reigned. But God wasn't pleased with Elah either. Because in Basha's line, they all committed idolatry and they caused the people of God to err. And because of this, his line was taken out, just like Jeroboam's. And when Elah reigned, he had a captain of his chariots named Zimri. It was his servant. And one day when Elah got drunk, Zimri came in and assassinated him. He killed him. And then and right there, Zimri came into power. 
And when Zimri came into power, he destroyed the whole line of Basha. Every descendant of Basha, he killed. Little did he know, maybe, that he was fulfilling the word of the Lord through Jehu the prophet. That was supposed to happen anyway. Zimri reigned for seven days. The people knew that Zimri assassinated the king, took out his whole line, and all Israel wanted Omri, the captain of the host, to be the king of Israel. So they stormed his palace. And his city was taken. And Zimri ran into the king's house and he burnt the king's house <laughs> over himself. And he died. And it says in the scriptures that he just paid for his own sins in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So you think Omri would be leader, but Omri was not leader because then the people were divided again. Half of them were for a man named Tibni, and the other half were for Omri. And this lasted four to five years. This infighting. Who's going to be king? Who's going to be leader? Who's going to be ruler? Tibni eventually died, and Omri became king. And it says that Omri did worse than all the kings before him. He walked in the way of Jeroboam. He made Israel to sin. And the Lord God was angry with all of their vanities. But eventually, Omri died. Anybody know who's next in line to Omri? Aha, so you got to go back and study. That's fine. Ahab was Omri's son. And it says here in verse 29 of 16 that Ahab did worse than his father before him. How? Because he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he did above all that were before him because he got married to a woman named Jezebel. And this woman named Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Zidonians. And the Zidonians worshipped Baal. And when he married Jezebel, he built a house of Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel, in, in the region of Samaria. And there he built an altar for Baal. And it says Ahab made a grove and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. I want to go into the details of the story. I'm just trying to give you an understanding of the atmosphere of the nation and the constant back and forth and the raising up of leaders and the casting down of leaders and how there was such turmoil and how there was such uh, chaos in Israel. And you know after this that Elijah the prophet rose up. Elijah contested the prophets of Baal. 
the 450 prophets of Baal, you know that he challenged them to do a sacrifice and whosoever God would come down and rain fire upon the altar, that's whom the people of God should worship and serve. And you know that they were there all day crying out, cutting themselves, crying out to their God, and the God never answered. But the God of Israel did. The true God of Israel the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came down with fire and consumed the altar. And after that, it was the challenge for the people to make a decision on whom they are going to serve. He didn't take out Ahab, but he took out all the prophets and the priests that Ahab was using who were worshiping Baal. Ahab went back to his house. And there was a famine in the land. And this famine lasted for three years. The king suffered. The king's men suffered. Everyone in the nation of Israel was suffering through a famine in the land. And it wasn't like it was a week, a month, a year. It was three full years. Elijah said to Ahab, there would be no dew or rain unless I speak of it in chapter 17. And so Elijah went because he had provision. God said the ravens are going to feed you. Don't you worry about this. He was given bread. He was given flesh. He was given water. But wherever Elijah left to, because of the famine and the brook that he was nearby, it dried up itself. And so the Lord sent Elijah to a woman who was down to her last leg, last meal, was ready to cook it and die with her child. And Elijah says, no, 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 no. You cook me a food first, and then you can feed yourself. Widow did what Elijah said. And that meal never ran out. But you know that later on, her son then got sick. And her son eventually died. And she became upset with Elijah. Elijah took the child from her, did a couple strange things in the house. We've already gone over that, but that's not the point of this message, so I'm skipping that over. But suffice it to say, the child lived, and it became a sign unto the widow. The widow's faith in Elijah was rejuvenated. She decreed that he was a man of God, and the word of the Lord from his mouth was true. Elijah was a sign unto this heathen woman. That he was a man of God and the Lord did was really alive. We get to the story where Obadiah was the governor of Ahab's house. And Ahab was searching for Elijah. And he sent Obadiah to go search as well. But 
Obadiah, in the midst of a crooked, wicked, and perverse leadership and generation, was serving in the house of that man, whom the Spirit had ordered was never on him. He did things that were wickedly wicked, and he led all the people to do the same. But it says that he feared the Lord greatly. And he worked to save the prophets of the Lord by hiding them 50 in a cave. He saved a 100 prophets. Even though he was serving under the house of a corrupt and evil, wicked leadership. So lo and behold, Elijah comes to Obadiah. Obadiah becomes fearful because Elijah says, go and tell Ahab, I want to see him. And Obadiah was like, wait a second, you're going to disappear. You've been disappearing for three years. If I go tell him that and then you're not there, he's going to end up killing me. So he gives him his word that I'm not going to disappear. So when he meets Ahab, Abraham, excuse me, not Abraham, Ahab blames Elijah. Oh, there he is, the guy that's causing this famine in the land. And, and Elijah corrects him and says, no, Ahab, it was because of you and because of your house that you need to take credit for this famine in the land because you forsook the commandments of the Lord in following Baal. So Elijah, this is where that challenge came in and all the 450 prophets and the groves and all of that and the fire came down. But this is how it came about. And the people, after this fire came down and consumed Elijah's sacrifice, they declared that the Lord, he is good. And you know what? Ahab was included with them. He declared it too. So they apprehended all the 450 prophets and he slew them all. And this is when that famine for three years was going to stop. And so Ahab went back to his wife, told his wife what had happened. And you'd think at that moment, they all decreed the Lord God. He is God. He is true. They were all in on it. They slew all those prophets of Balaam. You'd think it's a new day, new leadership. Ahab's going to change to his wife, his wife says one word to Elijah. And you think everybody's behind Elijah. Everybody's like, oh, the prophet of God. Look at what he's done. He's taken out all 450 prophets. Him alone, him alone did it. There's nobody with him. And at one word of one woman, Elijah, the hero, runs. He runs away. He left Israel. And he left his servant in Beersheba. And then he traveled a day into the wilderness and he was asking to die. Because he felt he was no better than his fathers. And so I come to 1 Kings 19. You all know it. The Lord says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response 
I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He knew that wasn't true. He knew there was a hundred prophets that were being saved by Obadiah. Where did he come off getting that? Perspective and opinion that he was alone, alone, the only righteous one. All the others had sinned. That's where he's casting all the blame. All of them have forsaken that covenant. They slain your altar, your, your, your prophets with the sword. They've thrown down your altars. And so the Lord passed by him. He said, go over there. Go over there on the mountain. And the Lord passed by him. First he came with a strong wind, but he wasn't in. And he came with the earthquake and all the trembling of the earth began to quake. But he wasn't in that. Then there was a fire. And he wasn't in that either. And then the Lord spoke to him in a still, small voice. And what did he say? Elijah wouldn't do it. <laughs> and Elijah says the very same thing to him. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, because the children of Israel, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They torn down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He then gives them some commandments. Go your way back to the wilderness of Damascus. Anoint Hazael, king over Syria. He says, anoint Jehu, the king over Israel. He says, anoint Elijah, the, the prophet in your place. And then he gives a prophecy of whoever's, whoever escapes this person is going to be killed by this person. Whoever escapes this person is going to be killed by this person. But I want to come to verse 18 because verse 18 is very, very important to me and today. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. All of them whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The pride and arrogance of Elijah, even though he was serving the Lord, to think that he was the only one, knowing that there was a hundred that were saved by Obadiah. And the Lord corrects him even further. In the midst of all of this turmoil, chaos, evil, wickedness, perverseness in this nation of Israel, I have 7,000 that are still faithful to me. Well, where are they? I don't know. It doesn't say what they were doing. It doesn't say what they were, were saying. It doesn't say that they were speaking up like Elijah. There wasn't like 7,000 Elijahs in all the nation of Israel, but there were 7,000 faithful in this wicked and perverse nation. I call them the leftovers. The Bible doesn't talk about them being leftovers, but they're the leftovers, at least in my eyes. That was about 910 B.C., by the way. All of that was happening about 910 B.C. I want to skip 200, 250 years to about 760 B.C. I want to talk to you about Isaiah. Isaiah was another prophet, but he was mainly a prophet in the southern kingdom, and he prophesied to the southern kingdom. If I remember correctly, I think Elijah was a prophet of the southern kingdom, but he was sent to the northern kingdom. So he spoke mainly to them. But Isaiah was a different kind of prophet. And he lived in a different 
time, if you will. I mean, 200 years after Elijah. And he had a vision. And it was a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1. And it was in the days of King Uzziah. And it said, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished, I have brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. He's speaking about Jerusalem. He's speaking about Judah. He's speaking about the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom of Israel, but the southern one. He says that they have all rebelled against me. And he compares his relationship with them because he says, you know, the ox, you know, you use an ox to kind of, you know, get into the ground for you. He knows his owner. It says here that the donkey, he knows his master's crib. They know who's taking care of them. But this people, this Israel, my people do not even consider such a thing. Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should they even be stricken again? They'll revolt even more. Their whole head is sick. Their heart is faint. From the sole of their foot to the top of their head, they are utterly sick. Their wounds and bruises are putrefying sores. And they have not been closed. They have not been bound up. They have not been soothed with ointment. They are desolate. Their cities are burning with fire. Their strangers are coming into their land and devouring it in their presence. It is desolate and it is overthrown by strangers. So this is the daughter of Zion. Left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, a besieged city. And if it were not for this very small remnant, the Lord of hosts says that they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. See, now the word that wasn't used with the 7,000 is a word that is very clear here. There's a remnant. If it were not for a faithful, small, leftover group of people in the southern kingdom, they would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. How bad was Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out? They were utterly destroyed and fired. Utterly. Man, woman, child, beast, houses, all in ashes. They would have been utterly destroyed without this remnant. And the Lord begins to say, you rulers of Sodom. Look at what he compares them to. The nation of, of, of Judah, you rulers of Sodom. I don't delight in your bulls, in your fed cattle, in your burnt offering, in your goats, you people of Gomorrah. None of what you're doing to appease me, I am satisfied with. You come and you appear before me. Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Remember, they actually had the true altar. The nation of Israel in the north didn't have it. They set up their own system of worship. Ju Judah had the correct form. They had the priest. They had the place of worship. But they were 
corrupting, defiling it. I don't, I don't want your futile sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, your calling assemblies. I cannot endure your iniquity of your sacred meetings. I am weary of bearing them and tolerating them. When you spread out your hands and you hide my eyes from you, even though you're making prayers, I'm not going to hear you. Your hands are full of blood. This is what he says to them in demand. Wash yourselves. In verse 16, make yourselves clean. Put away your evil doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. But notice, you couldn't do anything in verse 17 until you take care of verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from my eyes and cease to do evil. That's when you can then come back with vengeance against evil. Because you're not walking in it anymore. So he says, come now. Let us reason together. I know you're dirty. I know you're corrupt. I know you're, you're, you're walking in evil. But though your sins be red as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are wicked and obedient, then you will eat the good of the land. This calamity, this, this, this environment that you are living in, I promise that you will eat the good of this land if you become willing and obedient. But if you refuse, if you rebel, you're going to be devoured by the sword. My mouth has spoken. I can't get over the fact. I can't. But it's hard. It's sobering. That's the correct word. It's sobering to consider another prophet. I went from Elijah to Isaiah and then to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom and he lasted in the last of the kings of Judah. He was alive during the last, I can go get you the exact number, but about the last four or five, six kings of Judah. All the way into the captivity of Babylon. Isaiah wasn't the sinner that was sinning all of those things. Elijah wasn't the sinner worshiping Baal. Jeremiah wrote, obviously, the, the, the book of Jeremiah, but he also wrote the Lamentations of the Prophet. He wasn't the sinner. He was crying out for the people to repent from their wicked ways. He was known as the crying prophet. 
because he was so broken at the sins of the nation. And he kept crying for them to turn back to righteousness, crying to them to turn back to the Lord. Did they listen? It was from the moment that the nation of Israel and Judah was broken, it was a downward spiral that got worse and worse and worse. There were 19 kings in the line of the house of Judah and 19 kings in the line of the house of Israel. There was one queen on the southern side, Judah. Judah lasted a little bit longer because before Judah was taken captive by Babylon, Israel was taken captive by Assyria. They were already in captivity in Assyria. Babylon then took both of them, including Assyria. But the point is that Jeremiah was not the sinner. He was not the one that was committing the sins. He was crying out that they would repent. And yet the holy prophet of God also experienced the captivity. He paid for the sins of the people that surrounded him. His nation, his family, his friends, as if he had committed those sins. That's sobering. You would think, but why? What's just in that? Going through a Bible study in Romans with uh, Brother and Sister Acosta. We're reading in Romans for the first two chapters. I mean, he just, he just, Paul just lays it out. Man, you are without excuse. Whether you were in the law or you were without the law, all of y'all, all of us, have sinned. Fall short. Nobody, nobody, nobody is good. No, not one. None does what they need to do. None seeks the Father like they should be seeking the Father. Everybody is guilty. Everybody has failed. Everybody has missed the mark. And so when I think of Jeremiah, he may have been the holy prophet of God, crying out for the sins of the people and for them to repent, and yet he still suffered the Babylonian captivity. You can read that in Jeremiah. You can read that in Lamentations. What he cried about. I'm going to skip another 200 years. It's about 518 BC now. It went from 960 to 700 something and now about 518 BC. All of that is, we don't know about the exact moments in time in history. That's not the point. But I'm trying to give you a picture of the different generations that have come and go. Because how did I start today? Ecclesiastes 1.9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new. We come to Zechariah in chapter 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is after the Babylonian captivity. After the years and years of suffering of his people, the discipline that he brought upon his people for their rebelliousness and their sins, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. 
and he describes the heart of God to Zechariah toward his people. He says to Zechariah, I am zealous for Zion. With great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. He says to Zechariah, I'm going to return to Zion. I am going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be called the city of truth. It is going to be called the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain. He's telling this to Zechariah. Zechariah is prophesying this. And he says, furthermore, that the old women and the old men, they're going to sit in the streets of Jerusalem. And they're going to have a staff because of their great age. And he says, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. You have to understand why this word is so important because they have been suffering under captivity for hundreds of years now. They not only have been suffering captivity, they've been suffering their evil and corrupt own leadership. Their own kings failed them. Their own shepherds failed them. That's where it started. It was in the house of God that the failure started and it resulted in them now being taken over by those outside. Remember, strangers are going to come into your land and to devour your land right in your midst, right in your face. But his heart changes and he says to Zechariah, I'm going to come back. And the old men and women they're going to hold staffs and they're going to be in the streets and, and their women, boys and girls are going to be playing in the streets. And there's going to be this, this picture of redemption, this picture of restoration. And, and, and he says in the very next verse, this is going to be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people amongst the leftovers. They're going to see this and it's going to be marvelous. It's going to be something that they are going to be so overjoyed with. And if it's going to be so joyful for them, will it not be also marvelous in my eyes? The Lord says. The Lord takes great joy in blessing his people. When they're right, when they're in the right, he doesn't like to withhold any good thing from those that are walking in a manner that is pleasing to him. He said in verse 8, I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God. In truth and righteousness. So the Lord says, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days these words by my mouth of the by the mouths of the prophets, who spoke in the day of the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. But now in verse 11, I will not treat the remnant of this people as I did in the former days. This seed shall be. Prosperous. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. And the heavens that were shut up 
shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these. That is awesome in itself. Because they have suffered so much, you would think there's no way, there's no way. How many nations in history are non-existent? Entirely and completely. They're, they're forgotten, bygone of the past. But God, no, not so with my people. I have a remnant, a leftover, that I am going to fulfill these words. It shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, I will save you. You shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. These are the things you shall do in verse 16. What is the remnant supposed to be doing? Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Do not love a false oath for all these things I hate. I hate when neighbors are not speaking truthfully to one another. I hate when you are giving judgment that is not in truth, that is not just, that is not bringing about peace. I hate that some of you think evil against your neighbor. I hate that some of you make promises and don't keep them. Come to Ezra, just a little bit after Zechariah, maybe 50 years. We're now at about 450 BC. Ezra, as you know, is called back to Jerusalem to rebuild, restore, and do all of these things. He's, he, he's being used by God to bring about this prophetic word that we just read in Zechariah. But something happened that breaks. Ezra's heart. In Ezra chapter 9. It is told to him by the leaders that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Oh, no, not again. Uh, not again. Did we not learn from Ahab? Who married a woman who was the daughter of the king of the Zidonians who worshipped Baal? Did not our father in the face, Solomon, do the same thing which caused the kingdom to be divided? We're going to do it again? They have taken some of their daughters as wives. They have taken some of their sons as husbands. And they have mixed the holy seed with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers have been foremost in this trespass. 
Again, the leaders are going to lead us astray and in error again. So when he heard this, he, he, he was broken. He was torn. He tore up his garment. He tore up his robe. He plucked it out, his hair and his beard, and he sat down astonished. Because they're going to do it again. There was a group of people with him, and they all trembled. They all trembled at the words of God. Because they realized the transgression that was taking place. And they sat down astonished. They arose from their fasting, from their tearing of their garments and their robe, and they fell on their knees, and they spread out their hands to the Lord their God. And he said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed. I am too humiliated to even lift up my face to you, my God. Four hours. He wasn't the one that married. He prayed to the Lord. He stood in the gap and he said, for our iniquities, as if he was the direct person guilty. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, he says. Our guilt has grown up to the heavens. We are so obviously guilty. And since the days of our fathers to this day, even his ancestors, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been guilty for our iniquities. We, our kings, our priests, are delivered into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to the captivity, to the plunder, to the humiliation as it is this day. Jeremiah wasn't the one that committed the sins. Ezra was not the one that committed the sins. But when they prayed, they prayed as if they were the ones that committed the sins. He says, now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord to our God to leave us a remnant to escape. God has made it possible. God has made a way. He has made a way of escape for the remnant the leftovers, to give us a peg. A peg is something you stake down, immovable and shakable. A peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. He recognizes we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. We could have been a historical nation that is a byword, not even remembered in the annals of history. But he remembered us. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair this house of God. That's what Ezra was trying to do, to rebuild its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. All of this is just a natural indication of what God is trying to do spiritually with the remnant that's found in this world. What are we going to say after this? We've forsaken your commandments. You commanded by your servants and the prophets that the land which you are entering to possess in is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the people of the lands, with their abominations, which is filled from one end of another with their impurities. Now, therefore, don't give your daughters as wives to, the, to, to their sons. Don't take their daughters to your sons. In other words, repent. Stop this right now. Stop it. Don't do this. Verse 13, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That, if that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what. And you have given us such a deliverance as this. And I, I, I understand why Ezra's heart was so broken because he says, should we again break your commandments? Again? In marrying with the people who are committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? You would be just God if we did that again. You are righteous, God. We are left as your remnant. And here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of us. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Do you think that we live in this nation we call America and it is not at all like the nations of our fathers before us? The schisms, the divisions, the infightings, the impurities, the defilements, the iniquities, the sin has run rampant. It is, it is reaching to the heights of heaven, the sin that our nation has been involved in. And are we going to stand here like Elijah and start saying, well, they're sinning and they're sinning and they're sinning and I'm the only one that hasn't done anything wrong. God said, when I shut up the heaven, and when I say no rain, when I command locusts to come into the land and devour it, when I send pestilence among the people, my people, you know what the next verse says? Yeah, you do. If my people 
who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And if they turn from their wicked ways, then, then, and only then when I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's when my eyes are going to be open and my ears are going to be attentive to your prayer. I hope you're connecting it to what we're living in today. America has some great principles upon which it's founded, obviously. A lot of them were birthed, if you will, by the law that was found in the Word of God. And it hasn't been perfect. Over the years, it's gotten better. But I can't turn a blind eye to all of the wrong that's going on in our nation. But what hurts even more is I, I see the church, our brothers and sisters falling into these camps in America. And that's not our camp. And we're wanting this leader, we're wanting that leader, we're wanting the left, we're wanting the right, we're wanting those in the middle to be in leadership. And our trust is displaced. There is none good. There's no, not one. Not one person, not one government, not one group of people. They all have fallen. They've all missed the mark. And we keep trusting as if they're the ones we're supposed to put our trust in. And yet, 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 if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear them and heal their land. Church, you, you do realize we don't have a nation of boundaries of, of land that we can call our own. We are a peculiar people in that respect. And to be patriotic from whatever nation you were born and raised in is anti-church. It's anti the body of Christ. Because the members of the body of Christ are one in him. Not one in America. Not one in Russia. Or in China. Or in Portugal. Or in Brazil. Name whatever country you want. It doesn't matter. We come from all of those countries. Our brothers and sisters are all over the place. So I ask you, is there anybody here? Is there anybody in Zoom land that understands what's just been shared? 
The scripture says that God is going to put a mark on all those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are done with them. Is that do I have any brothers and sisters right here, right now, that understand that we need to get on our knees right now and pray? Not like we're innocent, but as if we are guilty of all the sins. Those in Zoom land, right in front of the computer. Is there any brother or sister who came down on their knees with me? And seek the Lord right now. And pray, my God, our sins, they fill the earth. Father, they fill the earth. And we have committed them. We have done wrong in your sight. We have done the sins of commission in acting them out and the sins of omission in that we stayed silent and said nothing. We placed our trust in leaders who failed us. We placed our trust in governments who failed us. We placed our trust in our jobs, in money, in things of this life that, that give us some sense of security. And at times they have failed us. My God, my God, would you please forgive us? And hear the prayers of your people now. Not my voice. But the hearts of everyone that's crying to you right now. Oh God, we need you. Every hour we need you. Every moment we need you, God. We sing we want you. We sing we need you. But is it real, Lord? Do we cry out with tears? Do we cry out on our knees, crying out for mercy? Do we acknowledge your love and mercy? Do we acknowledge that you have not dealt with us according to our iniquities? Thank God. We need you right now, Jesus. I'm so tired of hearing this word and this word and this word. And it's always the word after the fact. After it's already happened. I want to hear from you, God. The church needs to hear from you, God. You ask, are we willing? You ask, are we going to be willing to be obedient? But I pray that they all share the heart of willing obedience. That if they hear your word, they're going to do what you say. We take for granted, God. What were the sins that you wrote down? You pray them in your heart. Not just for the nations, but for your families and your friends. Whatever they may be. 
Because this is the time of intercession. This is the time where the body of Christ unites as one. And we start with crying out for mercy. We start with crying out and acknowledging our shame, our guilt for what has been wrought in our nation, in our states, in our local communities. They're selling one another, Lord. They're selling people to make a profit. They call it human trafficking, Lord. And it happens all throughout the states. Expose our God. Expose the sin, O oh God. Let not your creation be thrown about like rag dolls and toys and selling them for profit. Have mercy on us, God, because we have been killing the unborn for years and years and years. We've trusted in the Supreme Court. We've trusted in offices that have been wrong. They said it was lawful to segregate blacks and whites in this nation. And then they changed their mind. It was once illegal to kill your unborn. And now they say it's okay. We believe for years that it is right. And the only way to be married is one man and one woman. And they have now said, no. Anybody can marry whoever they want. And now it's okay because the Supreme Court said so. Father, we don't put our trust in the Supreme Court. We don't put our trust in the government's God. We don't put our trust in our local communities, oh God. Because all are corrupt and defiled. Because they do not know your ways, O oh God. But you said in Romans that your people who are not saved by the works under the law will go about and establish the law. God, raise up your people to do that which you have called them to, O oh God. We need you, Jesus. Clean up this house of yours. Every heart here, oh God, I pray, is lifted up in exposing themselves to you. Letting the, your light shine in every dark place, oh God. So that we would be pure in your eyes and be able to go on as instruments of righteousness in the earth, oh God. Just asking you to perform your will in us, Father. Not a revival, not a cheration, my God. Just make us faithful. 
cause us by your spirit to walk in your statutes, to guard your just judgments and do them. My God, increase our courage and our faith in you that we would not fear man. Not in our workplaces, not in our communities around us. It's you alone, God, that we fear. So we humbly come before you, O oh God. We raise up our voices in lamentation. We raise our voices in sigh. We raise our voices in crying, O oh God. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and were blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus. Or you can cash app dollar sign jbenjesus. Or you can Venmo at J Ben Jesus. That's J B E N J E S U S. God bless.